6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Dr. Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Dr. Missler completes his teaching on the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 10 through 24. Well, you're already in the battle. It's high time for each of us to examine our shield of faith and if there's a hole in it somewhere, there's some aspect of it that bothers you. There's something in there that needs an answer. Track it down. Get it resolved. You need your shield of faith to be bulletproof because you're going to be engaged if you're, if you're going to be any you know, relevance at all. And diligence is the key to proper maintenance of everything, but especially our shield. You need to be diligent. You need to deal with it. And take the helmet of salvation. That's an interesting phrase, the helmet of salvation. And then he's going to go on with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But let's take this helmet of salvation first. What is the helmet of salvation? That's what protects the head, right? The helmet provided protection for the head. What is your protection head? Your assurance of your security. It, we uh, strongly urge you to resolve any doubt you have about your eternal security in Christ. The believer knows that ultimate victory is certain, is sure, it's determined. The ultimate believer's assurance is a critical blessing. You should have no doubts about that. There are some teachers around that might create a doubt there. You should have no doubt about that. One of your most important aspects of your defense against Satan, its most vicious attacks, is your firm faith in eternal security, sealed and guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. And I urge you to, to, to deal with that aggressively in your study. And a couple of quick verses, 2 Timothy 1.12. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. My security is in Christ's hands, not mine. If they're in my hands, I'd screw it up. It's in His hands, it's in His Father's hands, the Holy Spirit's hands. There's a whole study. You can get into that. But let's just refresh our memory with Romans 8, where he, Paul says, What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? And who shall say, lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Christ is praying for you right now. Wow. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities nor powers, those are ranks of angels again, remember? 
angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Whew. Romans 8, from 28 to the end of the chapter. Pick it up. I put a tab in my Bible. Whenever I'm down, I just jump in there. You can't come out feeling anything but fabulous. Take the helmet of salvation. And by the way, you can t just owning it, it's not enough. You've got to wear it. You can tell the guys that aren't wearing their helmets by the bandages, right? And the sword of the Spirit, well, that's one that we're all familiar with. That's an idiom that's, I'm sure, not unfamiliar to each one of us. The sword of the Spirit, which is an idiom for what? The Word of God. Now, the sword of the Romans was a machaira. It was only 24 inches long. This is very sharp on both sides. This is quite surprising because the traditional view of swordsmanship is a long sword is better than a short one. The, 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 the standard weapon in their day was a, a slight curved sword that was done by chopping and, and, and the longer the better and so forth. And I can remember when I was having boxing challenges in the academy. I, f I hate boxing, but I have a long reach. And that was, that, that was some help. Still was not my favorite thing, but anyway. Um, but the Romans did something different. Rather than a long sword, they dealt in a short sword that was sharpened on both edges. It was a very, at the time, a very radically different kind of weapon. And with that weapon, they conquered the world. The Roman armies conquered the world. They achieved legendary victories. But there's two things about that short sword you have to understand. It required special training. Just giving you a short sword didn't do it. But if you, with that, you develop techniques to miss the first swing and close in, close quarters, it was a winning strategy. But you had no idea to use it. Special training and lots of practice. And I think that's interesting because that's our jeopardy with our sword of the Spirit. We need to have special training go along with it. We need to understand how to use your Bible. Do you know the verses that give you the entitlement to your victory with Christ? They're not hard to pick a few and understand where they are and what they mean, but it requires some training. And the other question I love to ask a group is, could you, as a Christian, lead your Jewish friend to Christ using only the Old Testament? Only his Bible, so to speak? Not hard to do, by the way. In fact, it's overwhelming. That particular approach was recorded seven times in the Scripture, and every time it was used, it produced enormous results. Throughout the New Testament, seven different people, actually on 11, 12 different occasions, led their friends by the Scriptures, and in those days, that was the Scriptures, the Old Testament. They, they, they preached Christ from the Old Testament. It's not hard to do. It takes a little bit of an outline, a little bit of understanding, but you can do that. But again, see, it takes special training and practice. You need to sit down with friends and, and exchange on these issues. Practice, practice, practice. Christ employed, the sword, employed the, the sword, the sword of the Spirit, three times when tempted by the devil. Each time in Matthew 4 and also Luke 4, where where the temptation recorded, each time Christ's response to the temptation was a quote, quote from Scripture. Psalm 119, verse 11 says, Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. 
That's one of the several places where the Bible encourages memorization. Hide his word in your heart, not in your notebook, in your heart. God's word will preserve you from sin. It will mortify and kill those lusts and corruptions that are latent in your life. We all have them. What you deal with them is with the word of God. It all comes down to choices. Is the word more important than what's before you at the moment? Whatever is tempting you, whatever is challenging you, what's more powerful, that or the Word of God? And the answer is very obvious. You just need to take advantage of it. Well, that leaves the last one. We've been through six elements of armor. Most lists, many lists I've seen miss the, the most powerful of them all. They stop at verse 17. They don't go to verse 18. The heavy artillery. Let's take a look at it. It's one of the most important factors in a military engagement is proper ground support, interdiction, flanking fire, Direct assaults, all those things are part of a military engagement. Without that, you're just a loner. This all goes beyond personal armor. Far bigger thing coming up here. We're going to now focus on the heavy artillery, the action at a distance, prayer. One of the most powerful things to do. We sort of take it, it's so, it's so available it's so easy to get at that we just sort of demean it. We don't give it its place that it should be. Verse 18, praying always, Paul says, with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Okay? Praying always. As with any supporting fire, coordination is vital. We all need to be supported by prayer warriors, not just personal prayer, indeed. But on top of that, you need to get into prayer war groups to do this. And by the way, the word all appears four times in the Greek. All prayer, all, uh, you know, all perseverance, all supplication for all saints. It's a, con it's, a, it's a collective concept. It's not just an individual. It's not just a loner's craft. And it's to be continual, not sporadic. Just like reliable soldiers, we are to be keep we should, we should be we should are to be keeping diligent literally in all persistence. It should be habitual, by the way, public and private. Both prayers are encouraged, deliberate and spontaneous. There's time for deliberate prayer. Really set aside. And you sit down. You go through your list with him. There's also time for just spontaneous. You suddenly hear a need. You can pause and send a telegram right now. Supplication, intercession, confession, humiliation, praise, thanksgiving, they all have their role here. But no formulas, no procedures. Just open your heart to the one that's anxious to hear from you. Now, Paul adds a personal prayer here. Paul says, and for me, pray for me, in other words, pray and pray for me, that utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel? You've got to be kidding. Paul is asking to be more bold. Most of us would think that Paul is the personification of chutzpah. You know, audacity, whatever. Paul's asking, pray for me that I might be more bold. That may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in bonds. He's writing this from prison. Right? 
I'm ambassador in bonds that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Paul's asking for prayer. Boy, if he needs prayer, do you think we do? And how? That I may open my mouth boldly. Now this, of course, recalls here the discussion of the mystery of the gospel itself, which is revealed for us in his epistle here, chapters 2 through 3, you may recall. In fact, it was that very reason that he's an ambassador in bonds, as, uh, as expressed all through the scripture. So now we finish this, the, our study of uh, uh, Ephesians with his concluding remarks, verse 19 to 24. Paul says, That ye may also know all my affairs and how I do, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, shall make known to you all things. He's the one that penned this for Paul, and he's the one that's hand delivering it for him. He's standing there with you. Uh, waiting for your response, apparently. Whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that ye might know our affairs, and that he might comfort your hearts. And by the way, in, back in Colossians 4, 7, Paul calls Tychicus uh, these same titles, and he also added him, called him a fellow bond slave. A syndulos, a fellow bond slave. Peace be to the brethren, and love with faith from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with you all, be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Now there's something about this verse that many people don't know. And I thought I would just highlight an aspect about this that may surprise you. Grace is concluding this letter just as he introduced it back in chapter 1 verse 2. Now, by the way, you may recall that Paul had warned the Ephesian elders that false teachers would rise within the flock. That's in Acts chapter 20, when he arranges to meet with them and warns them what's going to happen. There's going to be people rise up from within your own ranks. There's going to be false teachers. Watch for it. And their diligence was commended, because when Jesus writes the report card in Revelation 2, he commends them that they will not tolerate false teachers. That was the good news. They followed those directions. However... Unfortunately, some of those believers lost the fervency of their first love. They got so business, so busy on the business of the king that they didn't have time for the king. We should guard against that ourselves. We want to be sound in doctrine, but we don't want to let that get in the way of just devotion, to stay devotional. But that's not why I bring this up, to the Ephesians written from Rome by Tychicus. Paul puts a personal mark in here. When somebody understands that there were times that there were forgeries of Paul's letters circulated that were a problem. And one of those was following the first letter to Thessalonia. And apparently forgeries of Thessalonian letters were being circulated and several passages start to make more sense once you understand that. At the end of that letter, that is Thessalonian letter, that's the second Thessalonian letter, Paul includes a sort of private mark, a personal token, so they know it's really from him and not one of these forgeries. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 17, the salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is the token in every epistle, so I write. Now notice how Paul is emphasizing that he, was, he has signed the letter with his own hand. He, he's using a secretary to do most of it, but he's actually signing it with his own letter, hand and because uh, it was probably drafted by a professional for him. The token in every epistle. He would also include his private mark at the end so they would know that the letter was really from him. What is Paul's private mark? Let's take a look at 2 Thessalonians, how it finishes. The citation of Paul with mine own hand, which is token of every epistle. So I write, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. How many have heard that before? Did you realize that Paul puts that at the end of every one of his letters? In fact, do you realize that no other writer 
of letters in the New Testament use that closing phrase. It's Paul's distinctive token. It's in Romans 16, Galatians 6.18, Colossians 4.18, 1 Timothy 6, and you go right through every one of Paul's letters, it closes with that mark. Even the one that many people surmise isn't really from Paul. And that's Hebrews. The epistle to the Hebrews. Grace be with you all. Amen. Written from Hebrews, Italy. And it's written, handwritten by Timothy, but for Paul. Grace be with you all. That communicates more than most people realize. That proves, it's one of a dozen different details, that the Hebrew, epistle of Hebrews was, despite some people's different opinions, it was, I believe, written by Paul. And Because uh, how does it end? Grace be with you all. Amen. So why is it so impressive of Paul's style? Because the word grace does not even appear in any of the other epistles, believe it or not. There's one exception. Peter uses it in an exhortation, but not as a salutation or as a blessing. But take that one exception. The, the word grace doesn't even appear. It's Paul's distinctive style, which highlights his thing. So there we are. So you and I are in a, in a warfare. And we've seen that warfare really come to the front pages over the past year. Alexander Tyler in 1750 pointed out that nations have histories, a life cycle. Dogs, cats, people, birds, they all have life cycles. They have an early stage, a middle stage, an end stage. So do nations. They go from bondage to spiritual faith, from spiritual faith to great courage, from courage to liberty, from liberty to abundance, from abundance to complacency, complacency to apathy, apathy to dependency. And from dependence, back again into bondage. Alexander Tyler, 1750, and there are many other models of a similar type. That was our history. From spiritual faith to courage, courage to liberty, liberty to abundance. That liberty produced an abundance that was the envy of the world. That's the problem. But that abundance soon brought us to being complacent. And that complacency usually deteriorates then to apathy. And I'm fond of pointing out, if you go down the street and ask the average young uh, person, um, what's the biggest problem in America? Is it ignorance or is it apathy? And they'll say, I don't know and I don't care. And it's very, very revealing. But that apathy is going to lead us into dependency. The percentage of our population that's dependent on government handouts is increasing. Politicians have discovered they can buy votes by using your dollars to hand out to others. And that, in, that creates a culture of dependency. And that dependency ultimately leads back to bondage. That's where we're headed. The America that we knew from the, several decades ago, 50s, 60s, are, is a myth of the past. From the 60s on, there's been a moral decay that is staggering. You can map it with any of 80 different indicators. And uh, it's all coming home to roost with our financial debacle that we're facing and so forth. It took us a long time to dig this hole and we're still digging it. Life cycle of democracies. A democracy cannot exist as a permanent form of government. 
It can only exist until the voters discover that they can vote for themselves largesse from the public treasury. When the, con when the Constitutional Convention, you know, adjourned, as Ben Franklin was coming out of the hall, a woman apparently asked him, what kind of government did you give us? And Ben Franklin is recorded as saying, a republic, if you can keep it. We should not take pride in democracy. Democracy is an unstable form of government. It's this unique balance uh, that make that our government that's given us the, the country we've enjoyed. Separation of powers, due process, um, and so forth. And uh, we, shouldn't, we, sh we shouldn't be promoting democracy around the world. We should be promoting liberty. It's a big difference. By the way, the average age of the world's greatest civilizations throughout history has been in the neighborhood of about 200 years. So we're overdue, in a sense. But there's only one place that I found that cycle broken, and that's Jonah and Nineveh. Jonah, uh, that was, Nineveh was the pagan capital of the world, and they were declared by God to be 40 days from destruction, 40 days from what I'll call ground zero. And God called Jonah to go give them that message. He was not excited about the assignment until God explained it to him a little more clearly. He was a patriot. He knew that, that Nineveh and the Assyrians were the enemies of Israel. He didn't want them to repent. He wanted them to be wiped out. But God calls him, and so he, after the fish thing and so forth, he agrees to go. And when he goes there, he doesn't go with a good attitude. He runs through town saying, 40 days and you get yours. He didn't want to John the Baptist repent or else. No, no, no. You, you've had it, guys. In fact, uh, and the, there are 10 miracles in the book of Jonah. The greatest one is not the fish thing. It's the repentance of the king on down on his own speculation. The king reasoned that, gee, maybe if we repent, God may change his mind. So they did, and God did. In fact, Jonah then spends the, next, the last chapter on a hill grumbling because they repented and they were spared. Bad attitude. We have the same situation here. I believe we have a verse that we need to embrace very passionately. God promises in 2 Chronicles 7, 40, he announces a principle, and I believe God is immutable. He doesn't change his mind on these things. He says, if my people who are called by my name shall do four things, I'll do three. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. Wow. Notice who this is addressed to. It's not addressed to the pagan left in the corridors of power. It's not addressed to the spiritually bankrupt executives that run our entertainment industry. It's addressed to us. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face. Those are non-trivial things, by the way. Humble themselves and pray and seek my face. Ah, here's the rub. And turn from their wicked ways. This is not a call to the homosexuals. This is not a call to Hollywood. This is not a call to our Congress and Senators. No, no. It's a call to the body of Christ. They'll turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. I believe it's the sin within the body of Christ that's standing in the way of what God would prefer to do for America to continue to be a beachhead for the gospel of the hurting world. There are many that would argue that it's too late, we've gone too far. 
Possibly. But I still think we can cling, apply this to ourselves, and uh, so be it. So what's your action plan from all of this? Guard your reactions, be a witness, repair, let's each of us repair our own illiteracy biblically and our illiteracy about our adversary, Islam. We need to understand those things, to understand the warfare we're in. We need to realign our own personal priorities in the light of all of these things. And our most precious resource is not our checkbook, it's our time. Where are we spending our time and focus and priorities? And what's your heavy artillery? Prayer. You need to spend time in serious prayer for yourselves, for your families, for those ministries that you cherish. Hold them up in prayer. It's time to get serious about our faith. And of course, as you know, I have this belief that you and I are being clearly plunged into a period of time about which the Bible says more than it does about any other period of time in history, including the time Jesus was walking the shores of Galilee or climbing the mountains of Judea. That's a preposterous statement. I use it frequently, I realize, but I really believe that's true. And it's never more vividly portrayed than the events of the previous recent months and what are going to become clearer and clearer as we go into 2009. And a dear friend of mine who's a devoted Christian, he says, Chuck, we know what's coming and we know what the outcome is. Bring it on! <laughs> so maybe that's our banner for this closing here. Clearly, it's getting close to the big wrap-up. So, Father, bring it on. Help each of us, Father, to be ever more effective for you. Help us to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Help us, Father, to be more effective stewards of the opportunities that you're going to be unveiling before us as we commit ourselves into your hands with no reservations whatsoever. In the name of Yeshua, our kinsman redeemer, our coming king. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Missler teaching through the book of Ephesians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us at 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, when we begin a new series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.